good morning, New City Church. Grateful to see all of you here today. For those of you joining us from our Matthews and Idlewild campuses and online, special welcome to you. We're really glad to have you here. I want to foot stomp just a couple of things here in a family news section for New City here. Just some New City family news. The first thing is Group Link. You heard that announcement across all of our campuses this morning. Group Link is happening tonight at our Matthews campus and at our South Park campus. It's an easy way for you to get connected into all the different groups that we have starting this fall and some of our existing groups that have spaces open for you to join. So I uh, wanna encourage you to be part of Group Link tonight. You can register for childcare online or via our app. You can show up tonight. We'd love to have you at our South Park campus, our Matthews campus, 5.30 to 7 p.m. for Group Link. Listen, we wanna, we wanna be a church where no one walks alone. And the best way to make sure that happens is for you to be in a group. So right now you're probably in some kind of row of worship and rows are important for us to gather together as a body in worship, but also we wanna be in circles of community. And so I wanna encourage you again to, to be a part of Group Link tonight and get connected into a circle where you can do life with other people. The second thing I wanna mention is a, a function on our app and on our website where you can take the weekend sermons and you can go deeper um, and, and just study uh, individually or as a family or even in a group, in a circle. And so if you're on the app right now, you can scroll down to group questions and every single week we create a sermon study guide that's based off of the sermons where you can go further, again, individually or as a family if you wanna have a family devotion around your dinner table or in your group. And so you'll find group questions and various scriptures and different things to go further with the messages. And I just wanna make you aware of that as a church family to go further from the weekend uh, services and sermons and to, to dive deeper into the scriptures and connection uh, to one another. So speaking of, if you have your scriptures, I wanna encourage you to open today to Acts chapter 24. And if you're following along on the app, the scripture's already preloaded there on the app on the sermon notes as well as the outline. And you can take notes there as well. Acts chapter 24. And we're actually going to be in 24, 25, and 26 today. I'm not going to read all of it. Um, but we're going to be covering Paul's defense. So as you're turning there to Acts 24, let me give a little bit of a recap and some context for our message today. Last week, we saw Paul on his third missionary journey go to Jerusalem. And much to the chagrin of the people that were in his inner circle who were warning him about what was going to happen if he went back to Jerusalem, he goes anyway because the call of God is on his life to go there and proclaim Jesus back where it all began in Jerusalem. So Paul goes to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21 and immediately you'll remember he's arrested. He goes to the temple to worship and he's arrested there. And he's persecuted. He's actually beaten by the Romans and persecuted by the Jews. And ironically, the Romans actually rescue the Apostle Paul from the Jews. And that happens three different times in Acts chapters 21 through 23. And then we, we talked about this passage last week in Acts chapter 23 in that context of Paul being persecuted and in captivity uh, in Jerusalem. The Lord comes and stands beside him. Do you remember this? Jesus himself stands beside Paul in that prison cell in Jerusalem. And he says a couple of important things to Paul. He says, uh, take courage, number one, take courage. And then he also says, in the same way that you have testified to the facts about me here in Jerusalem, you've got to go to Rome and you've got to testify about me in Rome. And we talked about last week, again, just by way of recap, as Paul went to Jerusalem and the Lord stood by him there, that Jesus gave him courage, told him to take courage from himself and his presence, 
We talked about the fact that when uh, the Lord God says to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, be strong and courageous, Joshua, because the Lord your God is what? He's with you. So God doesn't say to, to Joshua or to Paul here, you know, just, just bow up and just find strength within yourself. That's not where courage comes from. Courage comes from knowing that Jesus stands with you. And so you take courage from Jesus. If you're a Christ follower today, the Lord is with you. And you take your courage from Jesus who walks with you, never to leave you, never to forsake you. And that's the first thing Jesus says to Paul here on this, uh, in this prison cell on this dark night. But secondly, he says, in the same way that you've testified about me here in Jerusalem, the same way that you followed the purposes for your life and your ministry here in Jerusalem, you're not done yet. I've got more for you. And you're actually going to go all the way to Rome and testify about me in Rome. In other words, Jesus gives Paul, and for many of you today, you need to hear this word. He gives him a vision for his life and his future. This isn't the end, Paul, Jesus says. And if you're here today and you're, you've got breath in your lungs, which I think all of you do, you're able to fog a mirror, God's not done with you. There's something that God has for you because this is the day that the Lord has made. And so the call in our life is to rejoice, to be glad in it, and to live it to the fullest. We're not promised tomorrow, beloved. We're not promised tomorrow. This is the day, and God's got something for you. That's the simple message that Jesus gives to Paul, and I believe he gives to each of us. So, so out of that, uh, Paul is, is rescued in a miraculous way, again, by, by the Romans, uh, f- by being incarcerated, by being held in captivity. And the very next day, the Bible says in Acts chapter 23 that the Jews continued to, to persecute Paul and to try to find a way to end his ministry and his life. But before we get there, let me give a little bit of, of context and, and timeline. Because if you're just joining us, we've been walking through the book of Acts. And the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts go together. They were written as one narrative by Luke. And they're meant to be not only a display and understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus, but also in the book of Acts, they're meant to be a display and an understanding of the advent of the local church, the New Testament church of which we're a part of today. So simply put, the book of Acts is about the expansion of the kingdom of God through the local church. And it begins with an event called Pentecost, which happens somewhere around 30 AD. We know this historically. So if you're, if you're charting this out or you're trying to understand where we are in the timeline, let me give a little bit of context before we jump back into the passage. Around 30 AD was Pentecost. Around 33 AD was Paul's conversion. He was, he was Saul. He became Paul later on, but became known as Paul, his Roman name. He's converted to Christ somewhere around 33. And then about 14, 15 years later, he begins his first missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. We studied that together. It's online. You can go back and listen to that message. That happens somewhere around 47 or 48 AD. And then after that, there's a second missionary journey, and that happens in 49-52, and then a third missionary journey, which happens between 52 and 57. And then when we get to Jerusalem, where we are in our passage today, we're somewhere around 57 AD. So for those of you who are historians and you want a timeline, that's where we are in the timeline of history. Somewhere around 57 AD, Paul is in Jerusalem, he's been held in captivity, and now he's going to give his defense in front of a couple of different people, and that'll be uh, in, our, in our passage today. But before we get there, let me give one more piece of context that's really interesting, and I don't have the time to get uh, fully into this today, but it's a very curious story 
uh, within the story of the Apostle Paul that takes place in the second part of Acts chapter 23. So I, I mentioned that he's in prison. The Lord has rescued him and spoke to him and, 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 and said, your life isn't going to end here. There's going to be more for you, Paul. But the very next day, the Jews are at it again trying to end his life. And the Bible says that there's actually a, a plot to murder Paul that takes place at the second part of Acts chapter 23. And it's made by 40 plus different people who make a vow that they're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. So go and read this for yourself. The end of Acts chapter 23, a, a plot is made, uh, a, a conspiracy, if you will, among 40 plus different Jews who say, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. They're serious about this. They want to end his life and his proclamation of Jesus. And here's what's really interesting. We don't know anything about the Apostle Paul's family. Nowhere in Scripture is anything recorded about his family, except for right here in Acts chapter 23. And it's one verse, verse 16. If you're following along, look at it with me. The son of Paul's sister's, or sister heard about their ambush so he went and entered the barracks and he told Paul. So in other words, Paul's nephew, the son of his sister, who evidently they live in Jerusalem, hears about this plot to murder him and goes into the barracks where he's being held and tells Paul about it. I have so many questions here. And again, we don't have time to get into all this today. But, but I wonder, was his family, had they converted to Christ? We don't know. Was Paul's family a part of the religious hierarchy? I mean, were they, were they in the inner circles? Um, I mean, everybody has someone to tell, but this was a quick turnaround that, that these 40 people made this vow, and now somehow Paul's nephew knows about it and comes and tells him about it. So, so evidently, they were somehow in the inner circle of the Jews and found out about the plot. We don't ever read about Paul interacting with his family. In fact, when he comes to Jerusalem here, uh, he doesn't come and visit his family. Were they estranged from each other? Had they cut Paul off? So many questions that go unanswered here. But, but a very interesting passage about how God actually uses Paul's family to save him from this Jewish plot to murder him. All throughout Paul's journey... He faced trial after trial after trial. And this was yet another trial. And, 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 and in this sense, it's a formal trial that he's going to stand under. But before he gets there, he's got to survive this murder plot. And it's interesting how the, the Lord uses his nephew, his, his family, to, to save him. All, all throughout this, the Romans have been rescuing him from the Jews themselves. And here's the irony. The Romans rescue Paul from the Jews... And, and Paul is going to come to the Romans and speak to them the gospel that can rescue them. Just the absolute sovereignty of God. I did the math here in the story. The Romans hear about the plot through Paul, through his nephew. And they actually uh, subscribe 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearsmen, spearmen to transport Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So that's 470 troops are assigned to the Apostle Paul. So the Romans are actually rescuing Paul, and, and they think they're rescuing the person, but what they're actually doing is they're protecting the gospel through the person and the life of Paul. So I want you to uh, just go there in your mind's eye. Caesarea is about 62 miles from Jerusalem. The Bible says here in Acts chapter 23 that these 470 troops surround Paul, and they carry him in the middle of the night from Jerusalem to Caesarea to protect him. 
And every step of the way, what's really happening is that God is using the Romans to protect the gospel through the life and the ministry of Paul. So he arrives safely in Caesarea to stand trial uh, before various people, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But I wonder, before we get into the trial of Paul, I wonder what happened to those 40 people. You ever thought about that? They made a vow not to eat or drink until Paul was dead. I wonder if they broke that vow because Paul's still alive. God protects him, brings him to Caesarea where he's going to stand trial. So let's jump into the passage there, Acts chapter 24 through 26. There's three different testimonies that Paul is going to give. I can't get into every single one of them, but what I want to do today is give you an overview of Paul on trial, and I hope that you'll go further in your own study. Again, use those study God questions that are online or on the app to go further on your own. Paul is on trial here before three different people, and so I want to talk about the three people that Paul gave testimony before and just give a little um, understanding about um, what he was communicating about the gospel as he's on trial here. The first person is a person named Felix. And you'll read about the, Paul's testimony and, and being on trial before Felix in Acts chapter 24. Felix was the governor, the Roman governor of Judea. He had been um, put in that position somewhere around 52 AD, and he's in that position until somewhere around 59 AD. So about seven years, Felix is the governor of Judea, this, this province of the Roman Empire. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about Felix but historians agree on this. It's not in the Bible here, but these are my words. Felix was a bit of a, a goofball. He was a bit of a goof. Um, he's not a great leader. He's got a very poor relationship with the Jews, the very people that he's supposed to be governing over. And he's prone to corruption. And we're actually going to read about that in the narrative here in chapter 24 as Paul gives is on trial before him. He wants a bribe to actually free Paul. So he's prone to bribe taking. He's a very corrupt leader. And the Jews find, uh, find this, you know, uh, an opportunity to go and to make their case before this person, Felix, and hopefully be able to convict Paul and kill him and to end his ministry. So they send a contingency in Acts chapter 24 to go and make their case before Felix um, to, that, that Paul has committed a crime of inciting violence and a riot, and all this isn't true at all, but they send a group of people to go and make this case and this trial before Felix. And so uh, what you're going to see in Acts chapter 24, and again, we can't get into all of it, but when you read it for yourself, you'll see this. The Jews send a couple people from their council, and namely they send a, a spokesperson named Tertullus. And I don't know if you've ever heard of him before, but, but he was a spokesperson for the Jewish council. He's a very gifted attorney. And so what we see here in Acts 24 as Paul is on trial before Felix is Tertullus speaking for the Jews and Paul himself speaking for, for himself, of course, representing himself. And what you have is these two prize fighters, Tertullus and the Apostle Paul, going at it with each other. And spoiler alert, Paul wins. Kind of. He wins, but Felix doesn't release him. So imagine being on trial for your life. And you win the court case, you win the trial, but you're not released. Felix chooses not to release Paul even though he doesn't convict him. And he doesn't release him because he wants money. So even though uh, the Bible says that he can't find any reason to hold on to Paul, he doesn't release him. Now think about that. Because Paul has now been incarcerated in captivity in Caesarea for almost two years as he stood on, quote-unquote, trial 
before Felix and before other, the, the, the council people that have come from Jerusalem. And he's been found not guilty, but he's not released. And what Felix says is, don't you, don't you have any friends, Paul, that could come and give me some money? If you just give me some money, I'll let you go. And I think this is a very important thing to notice in the passage here as Paul is on trial before this first person, Felix, that nobody comes. All it would have taken is one of Paul's companions, one of his friends, um, Silas or, or Luke or, or Titus or Timothy or anybody in his inner circle to come and to pay some money to this corrupt leader, Felix, and he would have been released. But no one comes. And it's not because they don't love Paul, it's because they're afraid for their own lives. No, nobody comes to speak up for Paul or to offer money. Last week we talked about how, everyone watched this, we talked about how loneliness is oftentimes the companion of faithfulness. Some of you are lonely in here today. Some of you feel lonely in your life. You, you, you feel like people have, have left you or disappointed you or let you down. And what we learn here in the passage in Acts 24 as Paul is on trial before this first person, Felix, is he must have felt lonely in this moment. And yet he remembers, he remembers one chapter before of the Lord standing by him and giving him hope and giving him encouragement. The Bible says that Felix's rule and reign comes to an end. We don't know why, but the Romans remove Felix from power, but Paul is still in captivity and there's a new leader that comes on the scene in chapter 25 in the book of Acts, and his name is Festus. Um, it reminded me of watching the Adams family growing up. Festus. This is Festus. This is the next, the next governor in line. So the Romans put Festus in place, and Festus isn't a better, any better governor or leader than Felix was. In fact, Festus wants to get this off his hands. He doesn't want Paul and all of this nonsense with the Jews to be, uh, to be happening on his watch as a leader. So he pulls together a committee, right? He pulls together a group of people who can help judge Paul and sort of get this off of his hands. But he does that uh, after he tries to send Paul back to Jerusalem, so if you look at chapter 25 and Paul on trial before Festus, what the first thing Festus does is to try to send him back to Jerusalem to, to the council and to you guys uh, judge Paul and do whatever you want to do with him. And Paul, Paul invokes his right as a Roman citizen to stand before the emperor. So if you were a Roman citizen and you were on trial, you could invoke your right to stand before the emperor and to have a trial before the emperor himself. The emperor, by the way, right now in AD 57 was a man named Nero. A madman who brutally persecuted Christians. So that tells you how bad it is for the Apostle Paul. He's appealing to Nero. Festus comes in and says, I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem after two years, and you can go back and stand before the Jews. Who would have killed him? Of course they would have killed him. Paul says, no, I'd rather stand before the emperor. I'd rather go to Nero. And so Festus goes, okay, what am I going to do? I've got to send him back to Rome because he's invoked his right as a Roman citizen to go back to Rome. But I don't want this to be uh, on my watch. I don't want this to be on me. So I'm going to pull a committee of leaders together, 
and they can judge Paul and they can write up a report to send to the emperor so it's not all on me. Are you following me on this? Festus didn't want to send Paul back to Rome because it was his decision. He wanted the committee to, to, to own that for him. So sometimes leaders don't want to own decisions and they just want a group of people to own it with them, right? Sometimes we can all do that and that's what Festus does here. That's all of chapter 25. And guess who the main leader is that he pulls in? The king of the Jews, the Herod, Agrippa. And we're going to read all about Agrippa in chapter 26. He's the third person that Paul is on trial before. So there's Felix, there's Festus, and now finally there's Agrippa. Agrippa is the king of the Jews. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod that was in charge when Jesus was born. And they, ha- they all have uh, one thing in common, all the Herods do. They're all corrupt, and they're all puppets in the hands of the Romans. They're actually put in place by the Romans to rule and to reign over the Jews and to keep them under control. And so uh, Agrippa is, is not unlike his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. In fact, Agrippa, this is Agrippa II that we're reading about here, was actually the last in the line of the Herods. He dies around 100 AD, and with him the Herodian Empire or kingdom or reign or rule ends with him. So Herod's, or, um, yeah, Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Are you guys with me? I know this is a lot. I know this is a lot. But, but this is really important. Uh, but, but, but because uh, Paul is standing on trial, not for himself, but really for the gospel. And in this final person that he's standing in front of, uh, Agrippa, he's going to make his formal defense before not only Agrippa, but all the people that are gathered. And, and here's the key verse. Look at Acts chapter 26, verse 1. As he stands before Agrippa here, this committee that Festus has gathered together on trial, Agrippa says these words. He says, you have permission to speak for yourself. Uh Uh-oh. Agrippa says to the Apostle Paul, you have permission here on trial, Paul, to speak for yourself. And that's all the permission that Paul needed to begin to make his formal defense and to begin to talk about Jesus. Paul doesn't miss the opportunity here in making his defense, to not defend himself, but to defend Jesus and the hope that we have in Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, turn there with me if you haven't already, this is Paul's formal defense. So all of these other defenses are informal trials before Festus and Felix. This is actually his trial where he's giving his formal defense. And it's also the longest speech that Paul gives in the entire book of Acts. is recorded right here in Acts chapter 26. And it's the last speech that's recorded by Luke in the book of Acts from the Apostle Paul. And and so he gives this long and formal speech about his ministry and about life in Christ. I wrote here in my notes, I would have taken the opportunity if it were me, and I've been in prison now for almost three years, falsely accused, standing before people like Felix and Festus who were completely corrupt, and now standing before another corrupt leader, I would have taken the opportunity if you asked me to speak to say, this whole system is corrupt. All of you are corrupt. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Let me talk to you about the way I've been treated and mistreated the way I've been misunderstood. I've lost three years of my life rotting in this prison cell because of all of you people, but we don't read any of that from the Apostle Paul. I would have taken the opportunity to defend myself, 
Paul takes the opportunity here in Acts chapter 26 to defend Jesus, to defend the gospel itself. In fact, two major themes, and if you're taking notes, maybe write these down. In Paul's formal speech, his formal defense here in Acts 26 before Agrippa and before all the people, because in a trial, a formal trial of which this was, it was a public setting. So everyone had the right to come and listen. And the Bible says that there was a large group of people who had gathered that day to listen to Paul. And Agrippa says, you can speak freely, and Paul doesn't miss the opportunity to speak about Jesus and defend Christ. And there's two major themes in this defense. The first, Paul says, your absolute hope, our hope, is in Christ alone. Hope is only found in this world through Christ. In fact, the word hope is mentioned three times times in Paul's formal defense here in Acts chapter 26. Don't you think that's curious? This is a person who's been in prison for almost three years because of the corruption of different leaders and different people has been falsely accused, who's lost three years of his life, who's in chains, and yet he's talking about hope. You know, hope can't be locked up. Hope can't be held captive in our hearts. For those of you today who are facing circumstances that seem hopeless, or you're in a relationship or a job, or you look at your bank account and it seems hopeless, our hope as Christ's followers are, is not found in our circumstances or in people or in relationships or in a job or in our bank balance. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Hope can't be held captive. In fact, Paul says later on to the church at Thessalonica, one of the churches that he started in the second missionary journey, we even grieve differently as Jesus followers. We grieve just like everybody else when we experience loss in this world, but we grieve with what? With hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. 1 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. As Christ followers, we are people of hope because our hope is not placed in the temporary things of this world that are fleeting and fading away. Our hope is found in Christ alone. So as Paul is making his formal defense before Festus and Agrippa and all the people who have gathered that day in Caesarea, he talks first and foremost about hope. And again, he mentions that word three different times. But here's the second major theme in Paul's defense here in Acts 26. It's that Jesus and following Jesus as a Christian is actually the fulfillment of all the Jewish laws and promises. In other words, one of the things that, that Paul wants to communicate here is that by being a Jew, it's actually led him to follow Jesus. Now remember who he's talking before, Agrippa, the king of the Jews. And so as he makes his defense before Agrippa, he says, now you know, Agrippa, I grew up Jewish. And I actually consider myself to be fulfilling all the Jewish promises and laws by following Jesus. Because you may not realize it, but Jesus was Jewish. And he was the fulfillment of all the Jewish laws and promises. All of the scriptures can be summarized through the life and the person of Jesus. And that's what Paul wants to communicate here as he has a platform literally to give a defense. He doesn't defend himself. That's what I would have done. Maybe you would be tempted to do that too and all the bad things that had happened to him. He doesn't talk about any of that. 
He talks about what's happened in him and through him because of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that something for each of us to pay attention to today in our own circumstances in life? Some of you feel stuck right now. Some of you feel like you're in captivity right now in a job or a circumstance or a situation that you want to change. And maybe you're pleading with the Lord for it to change. And that's a wonderful prayer. Paul himself pleaded that the thorn in his flesh would be taken from him. Nevertheless, though, the Lord says to him, uh, my grace is sufficient, right? Even though I'm praying that this would be taken away, my grace is sufficient. And and my, my power is made perfect, the Lord reminds Paul, in your what? in your weakness. So, so, so Paul says, I'm going to boast even more of my weakness in 2 Corinthians 12. And, and we see that happening here in his defense. He's boasting about Christ and even his chains, he's talking about that as, a, as pointing to the hope that he has in Christ alone. If you're taking notes, maybe, maybe write this down. This is the formal outline. Those are the two themes, hope in Christ and the fulfillment of all the Jewish laws and promises is Jesus. But Paul actually walks through, as you would imagine he would do as a a good attorney, as an expert in the law. He walks through a very logical and rational defense of understanding why he follows Jesus. And here it is. Verses 4 through 11, he talks to Agrippa and all the people in his defense. He says, I want to talk about my life before Jesus. And please go read this for yourself. Verses 4 through 11, Paul talks about, here was what my life was like before Christ. I was very religious. I was a zealot, in fact. I was, I was, I was um, very energetic about persecuting people who followed Jesus. In fact, I would approve some of their uh, persecutions and even their murders. And he, he uses this phrase in verse 11 that I had a, a raging fury against them. In other words, what Paul says, before Jesus, I was an angry person. Anger is almost always linked to control. So if you find yourself struggling with anger, I would encourage you to ask yourself the question, what am I trying to control? Whom am I trying to control? Paul says, I was trying to control all these Jesus followers who were talking about the way, the truth, and the life in Christ. I was persecuting them. I was trying to stop them. And I was filled with anger and rage because I couldn't control them. But then he says, Jesus got a hold of me. He talks about his calling and his conversion in verses 12 through 18 in Acts chapter 26. He says, I was on the road to Damascus persecuting another group of people. I was being applauded by the council for my work and my persecution. And Jesus stopped me in my tracks and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, sometimes, beloved, God has to stop you to save you. Jesus had to stop Saul in his tracks in order to get his attention and to turn his life around and to save him, to show him that he was, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. For some of you right now, the the work of the Lord in your heart and your life is he's trying to stop you in order to rescue you, to save you, to show you a better way, to save you from your rage and your fury and your control, and instead to release that to him. Paul says, Jesus changed my heart, he changed my life, and he gave me a calling to tell other people about the way, the truth, and the life through Christ. And then thirdly, he says here, in giving his outline of defense, 
Agrippa, all I've done with my life, verses 19 through 21, is to try to be obedient to this calling that Jesus gave to me on the road to Damascus. This same light that I saw, saw, I want to share with other people the light of Christ, the light of the world. I've been obedient. I haven't been disobedient. I've just been fulfilling what God has told me to do. And then he says this. This is my, my last stand, if you will, verses 22 and 23, that God's been with me, helping me all along the way. Verse 22, to this day I've had the help that comes from God. Underline that in your Bible or highlight it on your phones. To this day I've had the help that comes from God. This is an only God statement that Paul makes here. In other words, all of my ministry and all of my life has been nothing but an evidence of the help of God, the presence of God. It's a miracle story, Paul says, and I I rest my case on this, that I'm serving the one who was resurrected from the dead. And because he was resurrected, we have life and light, and other people have life and light. And Paul says, I rest my case, I rest my life, I give my defense, and I finish right here. I rest in the resurrection. That because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, our people, Agrippa, the Jews, and also all people, all the Gentiles, have hope in this world. Paul finishes his defense here. In verse 23, and in verses 24 and following, Festus speaks up. Remember, Festus is the one that's convened this committee because he wants to get it off of his hands before he sends Paul to Rome. Paul finishes his defense here, a wonderful defense, very articulate, pointing to Jesus. And Festus says in a loud voice, verse 24, are you out of your mind, Paul? You have lost your mind. All of your great learning has caused you to lose it. You've lost it. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. I'm not out of my mind. I'm not out of my mind. In fact, I've never been more sound in my thought. I've never been more at peace in my heart. I'm simply testifying to the things that God has done. And then he says this, if you're following with me, look at verses 25 and follow in Acts chapter 26. He begins to address Agrippa. Agrippa knows what I'm talking about. Festus, you don't know because you didn't grow up learning the Jewish laws and customs, but Agrippa, you did. You, you, you're a Jew just like I'm a Jew. You know all the promises and the laws of God. And the fulfillment that God wants to bring to them. You know this, Agrippa. Don't you know the law of Moses and the prophets? Do you not believe, Agrippa? And and, and we'll finish right here. Agrippa says, verse 28. Do you you want me to be a Christian? In such a short time, Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says these words famously. Let's finish here, verse 29, Acts chapter 26. Paul says to Agrippa, whether short or long, Agrippa, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now remember, remember, amen is right. Remember the setting. It's a public trial. All kinds of people have gathered to hear Paul. And Paul says, not only you, Agrippa, but every single person that hears my voice I want each of you to be like I am. What is Paul saying? I want you to be a Christian. I want you to know the hope and the peace and the love that I found in my heart. 
I want you to understand the hope that doesn't come from circumstances or things in this world or pleasures in this life, but only comes through Jesus. Here's, here's the bottom line today that I would love for you to take with you and remember throughout the week. Paul's captivity could not prevent the gospel's liberty. Moreover, it was actually Paul's captivity, his chains, that led to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus that brings about liberty. There's only one thing in this world that gives us absolute liberty, and it's freedom in Christ. So the irony here is that as Paul is in chains for three plus years, it's actually giving him platform after platform after platform to proclaim the gospel that brings about liberty and freedom. And where it's going to take him next is from Caesarea all the way to Rome to stand before the emperor and once again proclaim the freedom that comes through Christ alone. I hope you'll come back next week and we'll start our journey to Rome then. To God be the glory. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're so grateful for your work in our lives. We're so grateful for your word that encourages us, corrects us, reveals truth to us, and encourages us in the hope that we find in you, Jesus. So I pray today for each of my friends that you would give them hope that only comes from you not through their circumstances, through the situations that they're facing today or tomorrow, whatever's facing them this week, that they would have the hope and the assurance that comes from you alone, Jesus, hope in Christ. Give us the wisdom today to know what you're speaking to us through your word. And now give us the courage to obey. It's in Christ's name that I pray this. And all God's people said together, amen, amen.